0: Howdy, I'm Kate Kavanaugh, and you're listening to the Groundwork Podcast. This begins an exploration of connectedness, looking at our own nature through the lens of nature, mind, body, and soil. everyone and welcome to the Groundwork Podcast. I am, as ever, your host Kate Kavanaugh and I am here as we explore together the interconnected themes of mind, body, and soil. I am coming to you right when those seasons are beginning to shift from summer to fall and I have found the perfect guest to guide us through that liminal space together. China Tresame of Haiyu Wine Farm in the Columbia right where the Columbia River and the Hood River meet in Oregon is someone whose work I've been following for many many years and it was such a pleasure to get to sit down with her uh not in person but over the internet to explore mostly her writing and I had this this really beautiful thought with China's work, which prior to this podcast, I sat down and read her new website, Still Life with Field Notes, as if it were a book. And it was just a really transformative experience. And I'll tell you what I told her, which is that her writing is really reminiscent of Robert McFarlane, who's one of my favorite authors. He wrote my favorite book of all time, Underland. And while they're not the same, there there is something there's a similar thread that runs through both of them and she does a really beautiful job of bringing together the movement of celestial bodies and terrestrial bodies, bringing together humans and soil and animals and food and cooking and weaving it all together into this beautiful space that she both illustrates with her, her watercolor and line work and illustrates with some of the most beautiful prose I've read in a really long time. And so it was really great to catch her right at the launch of Still Life with Field Notes and we also dive into her work on Haiyu Wine Farm which we haven't talked a lot about wine in the context of this podcast but i really encourage you to check this out those of you that don't know i actually don't really drink i will maybe two or three times a year have a glass of wine only in joyous occasions and usually only one glass and often that glass is high because i feel that the connection that they have built with the land and with all of these maybe even at times seemingly disparate things is just so stunning and they're dry farms so they don't have any water inputs do a natural process where they're allowing the the yeast and the bacteria that are on the grapes to ferment the wine and create this living drink. And China explains that in just a, a really beautiful way. And I I think to just give you a peek of why this might be an interesting wine farm, she has Named these different parcels of the many, many dozens of grapes that they grow into four families on on the Hayu Estate. They they run a couple of different little parcels of land, but she's categorized them as light phenomena, birds of prey, constellations, and the hedgerow. And if that doesn't pique your curiosity, I'm not sure what will. When I say that China is really good at rooting you to the season and bringing you into this space, I had one quote in this podcast about the transition of summer into autumn, but I wanted to include this other one because it was just too beautiful not to. She begins, The tree's leaves tell the story best. It takes weeks for them to let go of green, turn all the colors of flame, lose water, wither, and brown with frost, and finally release themselves to the wind or be dragged earthward by rain. Each leaf must form its abscission zone, decide what is leaf and what is to remain tree and break there. And, wow, I... (laughs) I don't even really know what to say, so I won't try to add color to her beautiful words. I'll just leave you with that. In this podcast, we explore so much, and it, it, it is mostly just sort of a curious exploration, and her ability to connect the above and the below I think, is pretty unparalleled. And I hope that you'll find uh, a lot of little gems within this the way that I did. And I really encourage you to go check out Still Life with Field Notes and just dive into her work and her ability to communicate all of the places in between. And that was really what came up for me in in the making of this podcast and the researching and due diligence was I just kept being communicated about those in between liminal, medium, transformative spaces, and I think that this season so perfectly encapsulates that, and it's a hard space to describe when we're in between anything when we're in between one place and another, one season and another one transition of life and another. And so I hope that this podcast gives a little bit of language to the liminal. So that is, that is my big bid on this podcast is just to explore the in between the middle spaces, the mediums, and to really illuminate that through this beautiful woman's work. Just a touch of housekeeping before we dive in, if you enjoyed this podcast as much as I think that you will, I just want to remind you that by sharing it with a friend, with a family member, or throwing a review up on Apple Podcasts can really help others find The work that I'm doing with Groundwork to illuminate some of these stories from the soil. And so, if you would be so kind as to leave a review, and if you would like to snap a picture of that review and send it to me, I will send you a little snail mail note in the real world as a point of connection between the two of us, between this podcast and you, dear listener. Welcome, fall, wherever you are. I'm recording this introduction a little bit early in our fall season, but when this episode lands, it will be hopefully pretty smack dab in the middle of autumn for all of us. And so drop me a note on Instagram at Kate underscore Kavanaugh or at Groundwork Collective and tell me a little bit about what liminal space you're in. Without further ado, everyone, this is China Tresame. I had already recorded my intro for China, and I loved it so much that I didn't want to touch it, but I had gone back and explored Haiyu's website, and I wanted to give you this introduction to Haiyu Wine Farm through the words of China before we dive in, especially because we didn't focus solely on the farm. It's titled A Wild Farm, and you can read it on their about page at com. 22 miles from Mount Hood's snowy peak in an alpine river valley teeming with birds and oscillating light lives a wild farm. Cows, chickens, and pigs graze among vines and fungi and flowers proliferate as gardens merge with forest. Upon this valley, the omnipotent mountain routinely asserts her mercurial hand. Frigid gusts challenge temperate drafts, and clouds compete with sunbeams. Storms swirl, rainbows propagate, and the volcanic soil eternally churns. Reading between these celestial and terrestrial signs, humans gently steer the land, co-creators of a startling alchemy. Near the pond, ducks fracture the air with their quacks and skids, while others silently roost on the shore. Parading their signature feathers and crests, the menagerie's cultivated kin communicates the pool's bounty to their wild brethren, whose arrival activates the primal instincts and undomesticated behaviors currently on display. Between trunks and ruts, cows chomp grass while their horns commune with the cosmos. Simultaneously digesting earthly and otherworldly forces, the lumbering beasts illuminate unseen energies. Felled in the field with their kin as witness, they resume their spiritual lessons. Their horns, recycled as vessels, are packed with bovine manure, buried in autumn and exhumed in spring when the lunar cycle aligns with the Earth's signs. A mixture of harmony, anarchy, and water return the now sweet humus to the land at twilight with a descending moon. Uniting dew, stars, and soil, the ethereal potion captures and nourishes the universe's boundless complexity. In the cellar, grapes macerate. Their golden skins hold an inoculum of microbes in the liquid born of harvest in autumn's torrid heat. Pressed and bucketed to barrel, a capricious fermentation arises within. Yeast and bacteria compete for the attention of concentrated sugars. Hydrogen ions swirl and swap states. Energy and uncertainty are generated in equal measure alongside fruit essences, obscure acids, unresolved complexities, and the potential for magic. For years, the wine remains opaque, cloudy, and mysterious. But left to mature of its own accord, it clarifies and harmonizes. A compelling paradox of flavors emerges, transforming uncertainty into profound, haunting pleasure. At the top of the vineyard, a pungent stack of organic matter decays. Animal blood, bones, and skin are layered with kitchen scraps, pomace, and autumn leaves. Strategic stratums of straw, cardboard, and chicken droppings mingle. With time, the pile becomes crumbly, sweet-smelling soil, the perfect microbial snack. These tiny organisms transport the compost powers to the Earth's lower reaches, where it fertilizes dandelion roots. Sprouting upward, the medicinal flowers become grub for pigs who fracture the land in their hunt. Humans drop seeds in their wake, and the cycle endures as the pigs, once butchered, return their blood, bones, and skin to the pile on the hill. Within a desolate field, a tall, russet stalk bends its stark, spiky seed head enduring the alpine wind until green, prickly spines signal their predecessor's perennial victory— As days elongate, so do the the teasel's thorn cup leaves, which form minute insect pools. Purple blossoms invite bees and butterflies to perch on their petals. As the new growth flourishes, the older stem decays by its side. Falling to the ground, it joins a succession of chaos, commemorated by statuesque relic of flowers and winged creatures that proudly crowns the season's first snow it's such a funny thing about doing this is that sometimes I feel like her voice comes on that's like, oh, and it even in me, even as many times as I've done this, that's sort of, oh,
1: should I panic yeah, <laughs> seem- well, the whole zoom thing is like that. You just feel it's like socially a whole new rhythm to get it used to.
0: It is. And it's funny to try to navigate where the pauses are in conversation and how the rhythm flows. And it's such a disconnected space from being able to truly read facial cues and to just feel the energy of another person.
1: Absolutely. I mean, at the same time, you're able to connect in ways that you maybe never would have before. I mean, I certainly wasn't into Zoom before the pandemic and it's been amazing to do something like this, or, you know, to talk to people around the world at different times and different groups that never could get together. So it's kind of a bizarre, like extra connectedness and yet also feels very disjointed. And like, have you been able to interview people in person too? Yeah.
0: I've done a handful of interviews in person, which has been such a gift and, but it doesn't, it doesn't happen just because we're so we're so remote and i don't travel a lot eventually i'd like to maybe go a couple of places and get a chance to meet with people in person oregon is actually one of those places because i have a lot of i have a lot of friends in oregon and i'd love to just touch down there and connect but i've kind of learned a different rhythm with zoom and i i think technology can be used in this positive manner and i do find that i get a hint of energy and just as I do
1: it more. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. It's very cool.
0: I was thinking about this morning. I think, I think you and I have been in the same room and I think you've been in the same room also just with my husband on a separate occasion. And we were talking about this, that I I think we were at the same event at Estella three years ago and just, and just didn't know it we had just happened in off the street with not knowing that hi you was going to be there we were just having a quick dinner after we had come to look at the farm that we're now on and and they were having this this dinner in conjunction with hi and we found it very auspicious because we loved the way that you farmed and it, it just felt like this sort of kismet moment in time. And so I think we might have been in the same room, but we didn't know one another.
1: That's so wild. It's amazing. Yeah, it was, uh, and that's kind of special too, cause we were on our way from Montreal. So we had just come down from, um, the raw wine festival or fair in Montreal and we're coming to do the one in New York and Estella put on this beautiful dinner featuring our wines and, um, Nate, who's, past is in being a master sommelier and knows a lot about wine was able to sort of circulate so he may have come to your table and talked about the wines but also um amanda who's the wine director who was the wine director at that time there did a beautiful job of like passionately describing what we do and how the wine's connected with the food which is incredible it's such a intimate and lovely space there for being in the middle of new york so that's so cool that you were that you were yeah, it's just neat
0: to have to have been connected in some some roundabout sort of way and then to come back together. And and I followed your work for so long. And so I'm just so happy to to finally connect. And I thought maybe since we don't know one another and I find I often do interviews with people that I have a little bit more familiarity with. If you wouldn't mind sharing a little bit what brought you Here to this moment in time, uh, farming in the Hood River Valley? Or are you in the Columbia Gorge? You're kind of in between, aren't
1: you? Yeah. So the Hood River Valley is a little valley that comes off of Mount Hood and connects with the Columbia River. So technically, we're in both because the Columbia Valley is huge, you know, Um, or the Columbia Valley stretches, you know, I don't know how far east it goes, but it's coming down from Montana, this huge river gorge and heading all the way out to the Pacific. And so we are in this really cool mid cross section of that huge river rushing out to the ocean and this north south axis of the Cascades. So we're sort of between these two, you know, snow covered volcanoes with a river going between them. And we're off just a little bit off to the side on the hood river, which is this, um, kind of rushing big mountain river. That's really freezing cold and turns like a chalky white in the summer when the, the snow on the mountain melts and then it, all the silt rushes down in the water. And so, um, feels really like an alpine or subalpine area, but then has this, wild huge river that's full of wind and has this kind of Pacific influence coming from the West. So it's a, it's a very special, like I say, a sort of a cross section or a, an area of influences that are going in different directions. So it can be very intense, but also very, uh, middle is the best word I can think of where like the climate is really incredible. It's like, it's a zone seven if you're a gardener. So it's mild enough that I can grow figs. And yet we can get, you know, down to 15 degrees and be snowy in the winter, but very briefly. And we really only have like a two month winter period. As someone who we were just discussing, I grew up in New England and Colorado, where you might have a six month winter <laughs> or, you know, a really <laughs> solid snow packed six months. <laughs> Here it's an incredible season where it's just extended on both ends and I can grow food year round, which is like so rich. So um, yeah, I came here in 2008. I moved from Colorado with my then partner, Nate Reddy to, we had this dream of creating a farm <clears throat> slash winery vineyard. So we wanted to be able to grow grapes and make wine and share wine in a context of food as well. So we kind of jumped in and bought land and started raising chickens and pigs and goats and growing vegetables and tending to three acres of grapes. And then about four or five years later, we joined with partners to purchase the adjacent property so that we became 30 acres. And farming 15 acres of grapes and making wine from that, as well as other properties around the Columbia Gorge. And we were able to expand our whole animal and garden situation. We had on, um, we started out on six acres, and we had cows and pigs and goats and chickens and geese and ducks and bees and gardens. <laughs> and so <laughs> it was a great relief to kind of move out. 30 acres. And then yeah. it, at this point we even now have other vineyards that we farm that we don't necessarily own, but where with the owners are willing to let us bring our cows there or our pigs there to graze underneath the vines, which is, wow. um, to us a very beneficial thing for the vineyard yes, as well as the animals and the yeah. whole atmosphere of the place. So we're sort of spreading outward in that way.
0: I love that. I want to dig into that. And it's funny you mention, I just, I think the way that you write has such a root in the space where you are. And it's, it, it was so curious to hear you talk about that in between space. And I think you're also sort of in between a rainforest and a desert in a lot of ways there. And I don't always write themes at the top of my, my interview notes, but something kept coming up as I read through your work about, in-betweens and these liminal spaces and mediums. And so I, I, I wonder too, if part of that is coming from the sort of in-between place on earth that you are there at Hayu.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um is a great word. Yeah. One of the sort of, we worked a lot with like myths and stories in naming this place and trying to find what it was about because you were having such a profound experience of being on the land and farming and also wanting to move it into this for lack of a better word hospitality space where we were you know sharing it in a way that was sort of aesthetic and elevated and brought people into the experience through their senses and uh, one of the stories that we kept talking about was east of the sun west of the moon because there's this I don't know if you're familiar with the story but it's like a Mm -hmm. you know, sort of like a fairy tale. And this, it's, uh, can't remember if it's a a young girl or young boy and they're searching for something. And it's like the, the witch or somebody tells them they need to go on this journey to go east of the sun, west of the moon. And so this idea of that, it's like neither here nor there it's between the realms in a way, uh, or like, beyond the veil or you know and that there's some treasure there sort of some of the ideas um that have come out of that and it is very much the this is not something i was expecting but like it is really this this place is like that because it has this like you say it's um between a rainforest and a desert so it's the columbia gorge which is a limited area um so the wine region is the Columbia Gorge AVA is 40 miles that goes from, I think it's like 45 inches of rain per year to, to 15 or 10 inches of rain within 40 miles. So to the West, the wine growers are growing things that are like from Northern Germany, not Northern Germany, but Germany and, and, um, and then you can move all the way to basically like Southern Italian red wines in the East. So there's sort of this rainbow of wines that can be grown in this area based on the climate. And and putting wine aside, there's just this feeling of so much, many, many microclimates and little twists and turns in areas that are just so different. So where Hayu is located is... Kind of a middle place in that middle place. So it's, uh, it's, we get about 30 inches of rain. It's pretty green. We have beautiful oak trees. The soils are actually very rich. It's where um, it's a big fruit growing region. So the whole valley is full of pear trees. And then a little bit to the east is another valley, Mosier, where it's all cherry trees. And then as you move further east, there's suddenly like no trees. The grass is brown and it's scrub oak and just feels incredibly different. And then there's elevation as well. So you can go from, we're at 600 feet. We're at right at the river. And within 45 minutes you can be up an 11,000 foot high peak. So
0: I love it. Yeah. It's just incredible. And I think that that, that liminal space comes through in your work. And I pulled this on your, your, still life with field notes, I pulled this idea of farming as a medium. And I was, I was thinking about this because it really struck me. I mean, you're an artist both with, with brush and with words. And I was thinking about the word, this is going to sound a little silly. I was thinking about the word medium and I love, I love looking up the dictionary definitions of words that I use all the time and just kind of exploring what that word might be that i haven't considered and i had never seen more definitions on a page than i had in medium or over 20 definitions for the word medium and i think it really spoke to this idea that when we're in an in-between space right when we're neither here nor there or something is liminal it sort of defies our ability to use language to describe it And so we sort of have this placeholder of, of medium, but it doesn't, it doesn't actually, it is just trying to define something that isn't really definable. And I mean, it, there were things like something in a middle position, a channel or system of communication, a means of conveying something, a mode of artistic expression, a substance regarded as the means of transmission, you know, and or an individual held to be a channel of communication between the earthly world and a world of spirits, an intermediary, a go-between. And, and so I don't know. I just think that there's this connection with where you are and that, and then for you to say farming as a medium, which I just kind of want to dive into because I think it's so juicy and rich, in this collaborative way that it's farming as collaboration.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That is all very rich. And certainly like medium is what an artist talks about their, their, you know, whether it's paint or yeah, like you said, words is your medium. It's like your way of getting from here to there, from the idea to some or material thing. But yeah, I, I started this little writing project called still life with field notes, which I've created as a website because I wanted to just start talking about what this experience is where farming and the aesthetic and the sort of sublime come together, which is what my experience is of this kind of life. And we've moved so in our society, we've moved so far from farming. Our idea of farming, you know, generally is kind of not so great and it's very distant, like we're not so connected to it. And for me, I I've, I've found having grown up not farming at all, like I had no real experience with my parents were gardeners, they, which was really cool, but not working with animals, any of that. Um, Me too. I just coming to that and realized that's kind of like our human, you know, inheritance is something that we humans have done for so long. It's very natural to us. And when you start doing it, it kind of comes back to you in a strange way that might be unexpected. And it just feels like a very... Beautiful way to live as a human being is to interact with the natural world in a way that hopefully is not the super manipulative end of the spectrum. Um, there's just so many uh, more more collaborative ways to do that, but I felt like my farming is certainly a way of connecting with the natural world and for me that eventually leads on to a sort of more spiritual connection and, and art is also a medium or a language, a way of expressing, um, things that words or other modes of, um, human communication do not do. So, those things just became very connected for me. And so I'm trying to kind of write about that and, and share it. I think just to get, I'm getting a little off topic, but you know, it's okay. um trying Man to come to back to farming. We're,
0: we're rabbit hole people here. Um. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think um, farm, farm as medium is like, there's, there's so many ways to quote unquote farm because farming, I just think people have this image of like a giant ranch or, you know, industrial farming or even, you know, large market garden with a tractor, but farming is really about interacting creatively and collaboratively with nature. And that can go all the way to those, to those places, but it can also be how you relate to your, um, you know, your pets or your plants on the windowsill, you know, it can come down very close to us. And I think there's a whole range in there that we're not exploring that can be just so rich and so important for us to be able to not heal the earth, but to be back in connection with the earth so that yes. we're not actually destroying it. I think it's, and, and... I think that that, go ahead. Sorry. Go ahead. No, no, you go ahead. <laughs>
0: I think it's, I think it's reciprocity and you write about this a lot. And I love this concept. It's come up a lot on the podcast, an idea of reciprocity, right? That it's not healing as much as finding that space where either we are acting as stewards or we are getting close enough and finding that intimacy with the land with these spaces that allows us to find reciprocity. And I pulled, I pulled something of yours on reciprocity where you said it, It's creating a larger pattern out of small scraps. There is an overall design, but it is fluid, adjusting to failures and self-seeded successes. It's an unconventional approach. It's all about attention. You're never done. It's a continual relationship to conditions, the passage of time, the evolution of the ecology, yet all the while you are getting food out of the process. And then you go on to say, I believe the best food comes out of this kind of live reciprocity, an exchange of energy between us and other realms be they microbe or plant or the elusive fairies of creative inspiration or deep cultural threads or the actual cycles of planets (laughs) oh boy
1: (laughs) yeah yeah i think that's my experience with so in that little piece i was writing about um sheet mulching with cardboard (laughs) i think or with even with black plastic but it's gardening where you are reading so one of our great inspirations here is um sepp holzer the permaculturalist from austria who with whom we did a little bit of studying we went with to a workshop of his in montana some years ago and um he has this wonderful phrase read the book of nature mm, and I love that. It, it is like learning to read the book like it's it's right there it's open to you and you just need to listen and go through the process of learning the words, you know, that's a hard process, but once it clicks, it starts to happen. And so he would sometimes get impatient with people asking quote unquote stupid questions, which because they weren't taking the time to stop and observe and be part of it and kind of read what was there. And so I guess what I'm saying is I, I, When you start doing this kind of gardening, you get these cues uh, about what to do next, and you definitely make mistakes and you definitely are experimenting. And yet, this beautiful thing unfolds. And if it's in the permaculture vein, where you one of the principles in permaculture is to get a yield while you're doing all of this, because that helps you keep going, you know, when you're learning then you actually have the successes of learning your first words and putting it together. And that's what makes you go, Oh, it's worth it. So you start out setting up these systems that might include trees that aren't going to give you fruit for 10 years, but at the same time you're going to grow like some kale under them so that you immediately have food. So yeah, I guess that's what I would say for now.
0: Yeah. I love that. And I feel like you've really integrated, all these pieces from permaculture and from biodynamic and from other culinary practices and just historical practices and sort of woven them together into this really rich fabric that is high you. And I see that in your writing. Like I see you explore the history of wheat and pull that in and, and to pull in different cultural threads of fermentation and, cooking and all of these things and just kind of begin to piece them together. And there's, there's a lot of biodynamic pieces within that space as well.
1: Yeah. So I really came to this through cooking and food and it, talking about mediums, the kitchen and how we designed Hayu is actually that they everything revolves around the kitchen. The kitchen's right at the center of the farm. And the kitchen is where everything weaves together and becomes this very clear experience for people where they're actually eating it. You know, it's like you come into you, and you actually are going to imbibe and taste and take in what it is. Um, and that for me is really the essence of it. And I think cooking is the place, it's the crux, it's where if you are a farmer, If you are a winemaker, if you are um, a human being, it comes down to food. And so, and as for biodynamics, I, so any of these terms, biodynamics, um, permaculture, none of them are particularly, they're useful, but they're also sort of limited. It's like, you don't want to become trapped in the dogma of any of them. We have not become certified in anything But biodynamics is a very interesting uh, pathway to look through or lens to look through on farming. I think one of the keys about it, again, coming back to the read the book of nature thing, is that Steiner, when he introduced the notion of biodynamics, which was a series of lectures that he gave to farmers in the, I think, late, maybe the early 20s, late uh, teens, he the main thing he said is, you know, don't just do what I say, take these ideas and work with them and see what happens, which in biodynamics, people actually really did. There's a lot of people who carried it on and did real experiments and um, scientific data that they gathered and a lot has happened with it. However, there is a tendency to just lock into the, the ideas of it and, you know, uh, follow it word for word, which is not what his intention was. And so I think if you can gather what Vitamix is about and take it on in your practice of reading the book of nature in your farm, that's kind of the the idea that it should be. But what it does do is it introduces us to a practical method and way of thinking that incorporates larger influences than just the material or the physical. And so it's quite an interesting place where those things come together, the the spiritual and the material, because you're doing these kind of seemingly way out things like stirring special cow manure that's been buried in the earth for a certain period of time at the certain season. And you're stirring it, for an hour with all the employees on the farm and then spraying it over the land. And so it feels very way out and very grounded at the same time. <laughs> yeah. And if you kind of dig into what it's about, it's sort of like it make, it can make sense in a scientific way, but it also doesn't. So it's, it's kind of wonderful in that it brings those things together. Um, And like I say, there's a tendency to kind of lock down on that and think it's just doctrine and do it, and that then then its meaning kind of disappears. So I think (laughs) as
0: humans, we're prone to getting wrapped up in in dogma. And I love the idea of remaining flexible and open to just being with a place. And having these, I mean, you said it perfectly, these lenses to look through, these different frameworks that you're incorporating without feeling like they need to be walled containers that you need to exist in. And something you pull from the biodynamic space that I love is this, I mean, to go back to in between spaces, the spaces where we as humans exist in the space between terrestrial and celestial bodies. And I think a lot about this in the way that, we look at the universe in the, in the sky and we look at all the stars in the sky and we don't often consider the universe below our feet and the 1 billion microorganisms in a single teaspoon of soil. And something that you're writing really captures is, is bringing together this intersection of these two places and this human plane existing between the stars and between the soil and, and the universe that I think exists there. Know.
1: Wonderful. Yeah. Again, biodynamics touches on what's going on in the soil. I think at that point they didn't have quite all the language that we do now about the, the soil food web and the uh, incredible biodiversity that is actually in the soil, but it does it also talks about how these celestial forces actually are working through the body of the earth like that it's all sort of one one thing yeah i think it takes a lot of study and understanding one of the books that i recommend in my in my on my website there is called culture and horticulture by Wolf Storl. And it was written in the, I think, late seventies. And it's a wonderful introduction to biodynamics and what's kind of understanding basically what it's about, but essentially it's, you know, we're standing here on the surface of the earth. We are part of this ecosystem and the earth is part of an ecosystem of the cosmos. And so everything. So one of the most Obvious influences would be the sun's cycle, which is called day and night, where we notice that it gets dark and it gets light, and that the plants respond to that, everything responds to that. We respond and to that, and then it gets more, you yeah, <laughs> know, quite a bit <laughs> If our circadian rhythms. And everything. So, yeah, and then the more subtle influences are so, it would be the moon, would be the next most obvious, and we can certainly see scientifically the way that the moon influences tides and the and the the tides of fluids in plants in bodies in everything and then essentially it's moving out from there you have there are influences coming from venus mercury mars saturn jupiter uranus neptune pluto they're way out there so it becomes a bit more um esoteric or subtle i don't think in biodynamics per se, there isn't quite such a um they don't really go into astrology per se. There is a great focus on the moon, because like I say, it's 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 a very powerful influence on plants. It's pretty it's one that's pretty obvious and can be tracked. But for me, having grown up I grew up inside, I grew up with a lot of anthroposophy, which is uh Steiner's philosophy and I went to a Steiner school as a kid and my parents are both anthroposophic astrologers basically. So I grew up with a lot of the astrological language and I just feel that the um, I think that there's a connection which hasn't necessarily been gone into so much about all of the planets and everything. So everything that you might be experiencing in your personal horoscope or your chart is also what the land is, you know, the land is experiencing that as well, the land slash the world slash um, society. And it's not something that is so easy to track or understand or, or study, but the point being that we just, we are inside such complex and incredible webs of realities that we may never understand fully, but to try to just tune in and kind of feel them at any level is really profound and can influence things in a big way.
0: I love the way that you bring this language into your writing, that there are these threads of entering Libra or Aries. And I pulled a little piece from, from one of your writings and I didn't I didn't write which ones they were from. I just kind of pulled these these little threads. And you said, astrology can be like a map. Your personal astrology is like a map of your life and your soul and your personality. As such, it's not going to be a literal interpretation. It's like a line drawing of this thing that you then have to walk or live astrology and biodynamics is similar it's not a literal extraction of what you're supposed to do it's an indication of what might be coming or what influences are around you and how you can be aware of them and utilize that knowledge so that you're taking care of the land in a way that's in sync with these forces and i love pulling this language into we are so it's so complicated and all of the influences on us on plants on microbes in the soil i think we could never pick them apart with science alone that there is this aspect of mysticism of spiritual and of things that our science currently could not explain and and you weave all of that through with just such a beautiful brushstroke with words and, and through your art as well.
1: Thank you so much. That's very sweet. I, I think like we're talking about mediums and bringing influences together. Um, That's what I hope to do in some small ways to just show how connected it all is. And I think for me, food was that thing that made me realize how, how connected we are. It's just so, so deep and so, um, the media and profound that to be spraying glyphosate on things is just like, so unthinkable. It's like, etc. cetera, all the other examples of things that are done. Um, and so that when we start even start to see how connected, so like any of the soil science that's happening now and people starting to acknowledge, you know, the disturbance of marine life by plastics or any of that, like to start to notice the way that other forms of life are affected, just it's, it ripples out. You can start to be much more sensitive and to start to learn, to read that book, you know, that's all around us. And then we will hopefully differently.
0: Yeah. It's funny that you, this idea of reading the land, like a book I had um my friend, Bobby Gill on who works at the savory Institute. And he talked about this through the lens of ecological literacy that, and, and I think that harkens back to like, we are just reading a book and we've lost that point of connection. And I, I agree with you that food food is kind of where it all comes together for us as humans and i think that's just been true of our evolutionary tract where most of our lives have been devoted to hunting and foraging and preparing and preserving food and that that really is this endpoint point into how everything else is connected and you said something earlier about that space where farming sort of becomes part of the spiritual And I know that this was, that farming was my inroads to that feeling of, of the spiritual.
1: Wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. We were talking a little bit about Robert McFarlane earlier and how his book, something he, one of his books is about all the words and language that, that are being lost, that have words that are in reference to, you know, features of the landscape Um, ways in which humans interact with landscape and it's just these glossaries upon glossaries of words that people used to use in their relationship with the land I think this book is called Landmarks and yeah that's a little bit what we're talking about it's like it's possible to have this very intricate and nuanced relationship with the land and I think that through land and nature, one has access to the spiritual in a much more, well, in a way that A, we as humans used to have just as a matter of course, but that now we have to kind of reawaken in a, in a more conscious way. So I just feel like food is such an opportunity because it's something that we all have to do every day multiple times and so every moment is a moment of being able to be or an opportunity to be aware of that incredible connection that we have to this like unbelievably vast and mysterious world
0: i love that and i'm curious i'm kind of curious what you View that path of reawakening. Like if you think that it's through food, and I'm gonna, I think within that context, I want to read a little piece that you had written, and I think it was on last year's solstice that I loved. And you had walked around and sort of given these gifts to the land in this space as this point of connection in the piece. And you you said the win is important. Solstice night is a moment in the year when it's very clear natural forces are drawn in, darkened. There's less light. The plants are asleep, animals hibernate. When I align my actions with this pattern, I can tap into something greater than me and be renewed or enlivened by it. Cultural traditions give us some fragments of the deeper currents. They are valuable indicators of what humans once knew, but to make a direct personal tradition or ritual around this moment or any other, like the short harvest season, your solar birthday, or epiphany, feels fresh and poignant, as though it registers. And I think that that kind of speaks to that reawakening space in some way that we can foster it. We can cultivate it. It can grow within us a
1: little bit. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I think, um, yeah, so biodynamics gives you these preparations, which are like, I talked about the special manure that's buried and and basically they're, they're sort of rituals. They're times of connecting with the land in alignment with um, certain times of the year because astrology is very much about this sort of clock of the cycling of the planets and, and uh, the, si- the planets in front of the signs and how that's kind of beaming down into the earth. And if you align with that, you're going to get some sort of flow of energy that you wouldn't otherwise necessarily. Not that it's like, if you don't do it now, it's not going to work at all, but it's, it's just opening up to those, those influences. And so there's something about like understanding that, but then there's also something about just being really present and doing something authentic to you. So when we stir the 500, the viral, at 500 preparation which is something that lots of people do like here we will have all of the everyone who's working on the farm at the time will come and help stir because just that act of like being present you know being together putting your attention on the water as you're doing the stirring is similar to meditation it's like very basic you are just sitting and watching your breath like not very technological or anything, but it's so profound to just make that happen. And every time we do the five hundred, it's in it has to be in the afternoon. we try to do it in a in a a moon a time of the moon where there's sort of a drawing in because it's about feeding the roots. And whenever we do it uh, twice a year, everyone goes off and sprays. we we do some spraying by machine but we also do some with buckets and little sprays of like um, weeds that we (laughs) so that we're flinging the droplets and everybody comes back like really tired sore arms and a little bit drenched in manure water (laughs) And, and yet everyone feels so uplifted and like kind of sparkly it's really straight and kind of great and also like not a big deal like we just but to mark those times together. And, and so I, I guess I'm just thinking about doing things in that piece. I was talking about kind of, I really like made up my own little ritual to just mark solstice and to kind of mark it on the land. Like I literally made little altars in different spaces and I made these little offerings. So little, um, I just left little bits of things there in those places, whether it was in some cases I've done like a, a stick of incense or a um, little something that's burning down. So there's, You know, you see this little point of fire burning down into the wet ground, or I made a little mixture of wine because that's something that we make here. And then at other times I've like offered milk back because we were milking animals. Um, or uh, natural leaven, which is a fermentation process. So it sort of has this other life going on in it. And so I'm just leaving those in those places as um, in some traditions, you would say you're offering things to the fairies or the devas or the nature spirits, which is also a lovely way of describing it. But again, if you, don't really have an experience of fairies or nature spirits, you could think of it in a different way. And that's kind of what I mean about different cultural traditions that can give you clues. You know, if you really want to tune into some sort of like Irish notion of fairies, you could do that, or you could go in some other direction, but.
0: I love just the act. I think that when we, when we make a ritual for ourselves. There is an act of focusing that attention, just like you said, that all of a sudden we have this, this point at which we're connecting to something bigger than ourselves and we're kind of anchoring us in a, in a season, in a moment of, in time. And, and I think that that, that practice of making a ritual and, and sort of tying yourself into these places, I think that can be really powerful. And you, you just described it really beautifully. Hey. Yeah. And just yeah. Two where our attention flows. And I actually I pulled this and it's funny that you said that. You'd written um There's such an opportunity if we don't do the conventional thing, but instead pause and notice, taste, look, listen, ask, what is the truest nature of this thing? Our attention is our power, you go on to say. Perhaps the one remaining force under our own sovereignty. How we choose to place it is of the utmost importance. Listening in very quietly yields surprisingly engaging results.
1: Yeah, so I think there I was writing about bread and cooking, you know, there's been such a, a lot of people making bread in the last couple of years. And I've been making bread and thinking about bread for a bunch of years, having gotten into the natural leaven thing. And I am at a point where I would really like to work with freshly ground wheat. So, so if you approach bread, it's like you get into it, you start to notice how it tastes when it tastes better than other times, how the process went. And you just start to notice if you keep asking, you know, how could, maybe you had some incredible bread in France one time and you're like, I want to make it, I want to find that bread, that experience that I had. And so you have something to kind of go toward and you notice, like you do a bunch of reading, you, you study, you're trying to get toward this bread. And so it's all about really paying attention and especially to, to taste. So yeah, I could go on about taste, but (laughs) (laughs) Um, the more pay and the more, um, you know, attention in different ways. So like it could be that sort of via the senses or it could be research or it could be talking to people or whatever you're getting deeper into bread. And as you, as you get deeper or as I was getting deeper, I was realizing how, flower is not flower like a flower you got to figure out what where this came from and how it came to be and it's i have grown like i have grown a patch of wheat and harvested it with a scythe and hand threshed it and i didn't get as far as grinding it but at this point now i have a little austrian stone mill and like I'm just getting further into what it is and where it came from. And then I've learned about how most flour that we find in the store has been aged. And it also, before that, it was built in a way that braided out. And I think it's Dan Barber who writes so amazingly about this in his book, third plate, the third plate, um, about industrial, milling and how so since the mid 1800s, we've milled in a way that basically takes out a lot of the nutrients in the wheat, nutrients slash flavor, because those nutrients have oils in them that can go rancid quickly. And so flour would have to be used more quickly. It can't be stored. So a wheat that or a flour that's been milled very freshly is going to be very different than any other stored flour. And that weed is going to have more flavor, nutrients, life in it that will um, lend itself to fermentation much quicker and and it will be more alive. Um, And then you're eating this thing that's more alive. And it's really true of kind of all food. The more you delve into it, the more you're going to find where if you can get back to its true source and its most natural state, it's going to be more alive and more interesting to eat and more uh, beautiful and all of these things. And that's not to say not to be anachronistic and try to go backward, but, and like in the case of wheat, there are people now, you know, trying to bring back the old varieties or to breed. Dan Barber has even bred new kinds of wheat. So it's like we can bring our knowledge that we have now and our consciousness and Things in a different way. And to me, this is um what permaculture is about as well. It's not it's like looking to the past and to the great wisdom that does exist in the past for how humans interacted with nature, but to bring it forward and to um, use technology and whatever uh mechanization and things that we have now in a in a wise way, and um so. For instance, in permaculture, you might use uh, fossil fuel powered machinery to reshape a landscape, but to reshape it into a form that's going to be self-sustaining and in a pattern that nature has provided as an example. And so these really incredible uh, landscapes or farms can be created by bringing those forces together with an aim of not you know destroying or just like using fossil fuels endlessly but you know um toward this sort of higher synthesis of things
0: i love that if that makes no that makes all the sense in the world and i think it's it's there's a, there's a place where we're caught in romanticizing the past and romanticizing the future. I don't know, Paul King's North writes a lot about this, if you've ever read any of his work. And I think it's, we have to find that space where we can use, we can use some of these tools and we can also still go back to an older way of doing things at times, like when we're making a loaf of bread. And I, I think that's an important space.
1: Yeah there's just such, there's such wisdom in the past or in, even in, um, I guess I give an example, this might be an extrapolation, but I give an example somewhere in the, in the writing about, um, cookbooks and how we, there is just like this blood of incredible cookbooks and talented chefs and people who have, or cooks who've who've poured out all their wisdom in these books that are just out there for us to take part in. And they are from so many cultures, so much more than we ever would have known before. And that information is just there. It's like incredible. And so when you set out to make bread, you don't just like get some flour and water and start playing around. You can go and look at Like there's people who just, you know, like Chad Robertson has laid out the entire way in which he has made this incredible naturally leavened bread that is, you know, has changed the way that bakers think. So what was my point about that? Just that it's not, it's not a bad thing to go back and rely on other, you know, on the past or on other people's wisdom, but you also don't want to just get stuck in that, you kind of need to like have your own firsthand experience, but also draw on what they know. Yeah,
0: I love that. I want to use I want to use bread as a launching off point to talk about fermentation, and I think to get into some of this. And I one of the things I love about you talk about fermentation in so many different ways, whether you're talking about bread or kefir or wine. I mean, it is of course the obvious space, but I love that fermentation is kind of this act of transformation, right? It's, it's turning one thing into another, whether it's turning compost into, into new life the next year, or it's turning grapes into wine, or I even thought about it in terms of a rumen turning grass into meat and milk. And so I just wanted to begin to explore this idea of transformation through fermentation and the work that you do there.
1: Yeah, that's a great idea. I guess fermentation is again, one of these liminal spaces that we, it is so valuable and almost feels like precious, like we could lose it at some point. Like it's this incredible force that nature lets us utilize. and so for instance, compost is probably my favorite <laughs> favorite form of, of fermentation um, because so we're, compost allows us to take what a lot of people would call waste and turn it into fertility. It's this little link in the cycle where we bring back, we come from waste to like creating new life. And that is incredible. And so, and all it takes is this simple, simple thing of piling it up in the right way and the right way being that you, you know, make sure that the moisture and the, the composition of the comp of what you're putting in there is sort of right. So it's like, it's not sloppy, simple. Like, Oh, I just throw it down. It's fine. There's like a little bit of attention you need to bring to it. And then this unbelievably magical thing happens that you're able to then generate like the best kind of fertility that compost is really the best thing to give plants. Like you can buy all kinds of fertilizers and try to balance your soil and put in this and that, and it can all be organic, but compost actually just does it for you. This is something that Elaine Ingram talks about that she's a scientist. She goes into, she's so complex and basically she says compost, (laughs) <laughs> um, yeah, she's amazing. So anyway, it feels like compost is this special, special force that we can use and people aren't using it so much as they could be, even from like from the backyard person who, you know, even if you don't garden, like to be able to process your kitchen scraps is so beneficial, not least because you're keeping it out of the waste stream and putting it in landfill, but you're giving it back to the soil in your backyard. Even if you live in, you know, an apartment in New York and you happen to have a little patch back there and it's tricky because you got to, you know, avoid attracting rats and all this stuff, but there is a pathway, there is a way to do it. And I just find that so amazing that that pathway Exists and that we could do it. I have had experience also, even with doing humanure, which is basically using a bucket toilet and creating a compost pile with all of your own manure, (laughs) Um, which has been totally amazing. And it's extremely simple. There's some rules that you really need to follow because there is a danger. There's a, you know, not a high danger, but some danger of obviously it's human waste so you need to deal with it properly but you go from human waste and being dependent on a sewer system that's polluting the world to having actually you know fertility for your land and there are again there's some rules about you know i don't use my humanure on my vegetable beds i use it on under my trees where it's not actually touching the food even though that's not there are human or people who use it on food crops, low down food crops, you just have to make sure that you've left it to sit for long enough, which is more like two years rather than one year. So again, like simple precaution, but, but create doing something where, I mean, it's just revolutionary, like to go from being dependent on a sewer to not, is like incredible. And it's such a simple pathway. So again, with wine, it's, it's the same thing. It's like, you can get really complicated and hung up on what you're doing, especially since you are creating such a value-added and precious substance. Value-added meaning it can command a high price, and so it's really important to do it right. But essentially, the process is very, very simple, and the more that you can keep it simple, the better it is.
0: Yeah. And I think that there's this aspect of letting letting these little microbes do their work. And and whether we're talking about humanure and breaking that down and then connecting back into the land, which I love. I mean you're you're rooting yourself back into that space and nature just as just as it should be. Or you're 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 stewarding the microbes that exist, the natural yeast that exists on the grapes and allowing things to just take their course and for that alchemy and that transformation to happen as it, as it is want to do. I mean that it wants to get to that space, at least from, from my lens, looking very much from the outside in.
1: Well, no, I mean, I'm sure on your, any farm on your farm, you're, you're interacting with that all the time. And it is like, we've been talking about it's a, it's a process of being very observant and like really listening or looking and watching and seeing what's happening. And with wine, it's just the ante is up a little because you are, you got to produce this product. But if you are feeding ruminants, it's the same. It's like you've got to keep, and the the animals, you're, you're responding to the animal's health and how they are doing. And, you know, with milk, it's incredible to, you know, their circumstance and how that's manifest in the milk. And when you've got like incredible spring grass and they suddenly have so much more milk and there's this much cream. And I mean, this is cows, not goats, but, um, and you're tasting that immediately milk because you are involved in it every day. And so then you taste that and that experience of taste is so incredible, not least because it's your daily experience and you just, and you so want to share that too. And that's what milk is so beautiful for is that it demands to be shared. Like it's, so prolific that have to find a village, you know, to share it with. And, but, and that's what I love about milking is it's a really intimate experience of that process. And you, you're very aware of like what you've seeded in the pasture and how that's affecting this moment of drinking this glass of milk, you know? So that's exactly what I'm talking about.
0: I think I love that you, I love that you brought milk into the conversation because I'm always sort of astounded at the rapidity with which milk expresses terroir as it were that you can that you can taste just the slightest change in the pasture that that cow was grazing in that milk and and we've had on the podcast like stefan van fleet really defines this in the in the scientific um but we've also talked a lot about this just kind of in the the spiritual manifestation of what it is to milk and it's such a quick feedback loop where i feel like wine is a wine has a much longer feedback loop on just expressing what was happening within the season and whether it was a dry or a wet year and, and all of the things that were happening. And I imagine at Hayu because, of, because you integrate animals into this space and so many different plants and fruits that there is an even heightened, even more heightened expression of that.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think for me, I, I had the privilege of learning it quickly because I had because I was dealing with wine and animals and vegetables and grasses and trees. And yeah, wine has a much, wine is very intimate as plants go because it's so labor intensive to care for the vines because you're out there every day of the year doing something with them. And it's often like throwing yourself on your knees and getting down in there and thinning shoots or, dropping fruit or, you know, you're very intimate with the plant over a long period. And that teaches most about what's going to happen in the press, in the bottle, in the, the whole process, but exactly like milking because, but although milking is, is even more wonderful because you've got animals where there's this like emotional connection, you know, emotional, physical, you know, um, you just have a very particular uh, relationship with those animals because you're out there with them every day, you know, leaning up against their side and, you know, all about their digestion and and their moods and their personalities and, and then like the taste of their milk. It's very intimate. And so I think that's a very quick way also to learn something like we're talking about with bread. Like if you really dive into it and get your hands in there and really feel it, you start to trace back, like, where did this really come from? Just like with the animals, um, you know, oh, why did this milk taste this way? Or why did she suddenly get mastitis or, you know, what happened, what happens when the spring grass fades to summer grass, like the milk changes, but, and like, how can we work with that in our fields? And, you know, um, you get, like you said, into a feedback loop that is more, that's very close to home. And that's the kind of learning that I'm talking about that also, like I said, produce the most incredible food. Like you, to taste that kind of milk just totally blows my mind. <laughs> and and then to think that nobody, not nobody, but very few people in industrialized nations have ever tasted that. And so their notion of milk is just not, the same thing and if they had that precious relationship to milk how differently we would require our farming industry to be
0: absolutely and i think it's that inroads through taste and you said earlier that you could talk about taste forever and i think that in some ways that we, when we can taste everything that went into it when we can taste that connection and when we've become a part of it too and i think about this especially with bread or maybe even grapes as you work with them and pick them i mean some of some of all of the microbes that populate you are are becoming a part of that ferment and and i think when you begin to taste place you suddenly become connected back into that landscape
1: yeah and that's why wine for me for how you wine is such a useful avenue or lens for people is because it's such a high value product, it brings attention to this process. So people who really value wine, they're tasting minute things and valuing them very highly with money. (laughs) And so it is a way to, I mean, that's where the, the term terroir has become most familiar is via wine and it's pretty well acknowledged that True fine wine, wines that are worth more, have this connection with terroir. And that to to farm even not organically, you're essentially destroying the terroir, which kind of devalues the whole wine, the whole uh, end product. So terroir becomes really, really precious. And I think that 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 notion, although we should we should pick apart what terroir means, because it's a little bit of a you know loaded term that people don't understand so well but it that kind of notion of being that connected back to the land is what we need across the board in all of our relationship to food and to yeah how we how we farm everything
0: that's fascinating i hadn't actually connected that piece of wine being a space where consumers really connect with food and are paying a high dollar amount. We talk a lot about on this podcast, what we spend on food and how that's adjusted and just sort of financial sustainability as farmers. And, and that's an interesting outlier within food because I think it has a, a much different perception within the consumer space. And so it just struck me when you were saying that, that I hadn't considered that value added process and that that connection point for the consumer.
1: Yes. So, I mean, that's kind of the reason why I and we wanted to connect food and wine. It sounds very simple and very obvious, but in America, at least nowadays, that connection is not so strong as it would be sort of maybe in the old world. But food and wine are really, you know, a continuum and they should be together. And wine, yeah, wine... I mean, wine is this wonderful thing that focuses, focuses on agriculture. Like it, it is inseparable from agriculture and it requires a really attuned kind of agriculture. And that's why, you know, biodynamics has become somewhat mainstream in the wine world. It's been, people have used it because they found that it really works to create this product that, is more nuanced and more does, you know, the, the farming goes better and they can get a, a better product from it. But yeah, we've separated, we've, you know, put wine off in this sort of elite distant place and it really needs to be right there with food. And then food needs to be elevated more because it is the same, it's the same thing, you know, and there's, there's been a lot of attention in the last 20 years on, you know, farm to table and like understanding where, you know, menus that say this is from this farm, but there's so much more to understand, which in places like Italy or in Europe in general, there's still some understanding of, you know, why we eat this kind of radicchio in this season, in this region, because of how it's grown and how it's processed and the history of it. and, and, to taste that radicchio in that context is really incredible, and pretty much everything has the potential to be like that. You
0: just picked my favorite vegetable. All time,
1: <laughs> yeah, I love it. <laughs> love it too.
0: I think within that context, you mentioned unpacking the term terroir. Do you want to unpack that?
1: Um, not really, but, <laughs> but you don't have to. I mean, it's similar to <laughs> similar to um. Biodynamics where there's so many sort of like stereotypes about the word or like misunderstandings about it. Essentially you just need to understand terroir is much bigger than like what the dirt is like or how the weather was that year. It's about the entire culture of that place, including the human culture. And so in a way it's a great word. It's just that it's it gets um thrown around and not used in its broadest sense, like it really is what we're talking about, how place and people and the the culture and um, nature coming together is what creates this food or this wine. And so that's what we want to focus on is like creating the most beautiful culture that we can in that place mm-hmm.
0: I. I haven't visited. It's uh, coming to visit is is very high on my list. I know I talked a little bit about that at the beginning, but I have a lot of friends in Oregon and coming out that way. But it feels like you are really bringing that culture piece, and I wasn't I wasn't even aware of that aspect of the word terroir bringing the culture piece is something that you're really doing by sort of marrying wine and food and people and agriculture. And I don't like to miss this aspect that, that the word culture is right there, that this is, (laughs) that this is part and parcel. And so I think that's something that you're, you're really bringing all those pieces together in a way that, Feels new and also very old, maybe new for us as Americans, but very old in terms of other cultures.
1: Yeah, for sure. Yeah, well, we'd love to have you visit. And yeah, we're, I mean, it's, as we've talked about, it's ex- experimental, it's an attempt, it's like, a. it's also pretty new. Like, how you, we've only been doing this for what, 10 years and only five of that have we been selling wine and been open to the public. So we, um, it's a constant process of growth and learning and, um, you know, improving and, and reading the book of nature to, (laughs) to do a better. So like, I think a lot of people critique permaculture and permaculture, um, farms or properties because, you'll often go in and see like chaos and it's true that sometimes part of the process includes chaos and there's areas where it's like looks not right or unkempt or whatever and there are there's sort of constant evolution which is what you know what life is so it's again this thing of attention if you just are continually being present to what's happening and seeking to learn how to um respond, then that's what it's about.
0: Mm-hmm. I love that. I w- I was just trying to capture that 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 process of of putting your attention on to something and then learning to respond. And I think in farming you get this really beautiful chance to kind of do this each season that you come out of a season and you go into winter and it's like, okay, what what chaos ensued <laughs> because it it always is a little bit chaotic, I think, especially for those of us that are that are learning this as first generation farmers and oftentimes as people that grew up in cities and and to get a chance to to tweak it and to do things a little bit differently in that next season.
1: And yeah there's to evolve about the um the seasonality of farming. I mean again this is goes along with what my my feeling of how humans live with nature, there is this, I mean, it should be the cyclical experience where you have down times and you have times of all out just, you know, here when it's grape harvest time, which we're about to enter into right now, you've already come through a summer of like growing vegetables and running around and it's hot and it's busy. And then suddenly you're actually like, upping the ante. You're all out crazy for the next, you know, two or three months doing harvest and making the wine. And I'm always surprised at how your energy actually is able to like rev up because you know that winter's coming and that in winter you truly come down and rest. And that's, to me, seems like the way that humans were meant to live. You know, it's how nature lives. It's how everything lives. And so even just following that cycle is so wonderful. And I think probably you've experienced that, experienced that coming to farming from not farming. Suddenly you're in this cycle and it's like, oh, this this feels so good. It makes so much sense.
0: It's connecting back to, I mean, we talk a lot about a circadian cycle or a seasonal cycle, but there's also a rest recovery cycle. And I think that we get to harness that as humans living and working on farms. I'm curious, going into harvest, I was thinking this morning before we were talking about this idea of the fruits of your labor. And I think on farming, we have this opportunity to to taste the fruits of our labor. And And I see this, you know, the first year we were here, we made a real mistake on where we overwintered our pigs and it was about a, a quarter mile out from the house. And we were hauling five gallon buckets of stream water in two foot deep snow to water the pigs. I, I mean, just, just wild feats of, of human labor to keep these animals alive. And I have really fond memories of that time. And when I eat a pork chop in the summer, I feel like I can taste fruits of that labor. And I think that, yeah, I'm just curious what your thoughts are on that, because wine feels like a really specific space within that.
1: Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Especially because, yeah, I totally relate to what you're talking about where like, I knew this animal, I helped this animal be born. I'm eating it now. It's so deep. It's so profound. And it's not as you might think it's not just like, sad some people are like why do you name the animals because then you know when they're in the freezer and it's labeled Daphne it's like oh but no it's actually a feeling of fulfillment and like gratitude the, the ripeness yeah for sure huge and there's there is sadness of course every time there's an animal that it's timed for that animal to go I always feel just how hard that is but it's not like an emotional, like, I can't do it. You know, it's more like it feels, and we don't just harvest animals on a schedule that's human imposed. It's more like this animal has lived a full cycle of what it's meant to be. So like our cows are often at least three or four years old. Our pigs can be, you know, six years old. They also might be um, suckling pigs. So Because the cycle of the pig as a, not as an individual, but as a herd, you have pigs who, um, if we were to let all the pigs, you know, get to a certain age, just because that's what we're going to do, we would have a crazy overpopulation of pigs. There's like a balance with the land of how many pigs there need to be. And so when it's time to harvest some pig, whether they're super young or quite old, it's sort of in in relation to what the land needs and what that family of pigs needs too. Um, So where was I going with that wine? (laughs) Fruits of our labor coming up on harvest. um, Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's true with animals, animal, raising animals is so wonderful because it is that really, it's just so close to you and it's, it's not as short of a cycle as like, lettuce or <laughs> vegetables, <laughs> even though I feel very bad. vegetables, like I raising, I feel very connected to them, but it's, it might be harder to access that feeling of, of, of harvesting your, the fruits than with an animal where you spend more time with them. And it's more, um, you know, animals are closer to us close, closer to, they have more consciousness maybe than plants who knows. But, yeah. um, but with grapes, uh, it's this lovely cycle uh, that really, really involves time because they, you're dealing with a perennial crop. So similar to like, say, if you grew apples or something, it's a longer cycle than annual crops. But uh, with grapes, it's a it's a perennial crop. So you're dealing with it like an apple tree. But then it goes into this process where it becomes a storable. Um, value-added product, an inventoryable product. So it sits on a shelf as a bottle and or it so it could age or it could travel around the world in a bottle, which is really incredible. It has this different relationship to time and space where it it um, evolves and and it's still as a fermentation product, it's like still alive if you're making natural wine that's really Alive when you're making it, it actually is staying alive in its barrels and its bottles in this very like slow, interesting process that you're able to dip into and taste at different points. So, yeah, I mean, and then I love the idea that it goes out into the world and it reaches, you know, we have our wines in South Korea and Thailand and stuff. And so that's this incredible sort of like message in a bottle thing about wine, where you are encapsulating everything that we're talking about on this farm in this fluid that's in a bottle that can go places. So again, wine is a really special thing that can, that can do that. And it could be, you know, if you did grow apples and you made cider and you aged cider and you made calvados or something, it's a similar thing. So it's not just grapes, but grapes and wine do have this really special property.
0: I I am just kind of struck by that. I hadn't considered this, that they don't have the same connection to time and space that so many of our foodstuffs do and that they they travel. I, that's so beautiful. I want to, because I can get ca- really caught in the esoteric and, and could just talk about that forever. But for people that don't know, I would love to define natural wine and a little bit about what makes you different because I think that this is a really important component. And since we don't talk about wine, this is the, this is the first time we've talked about wine on this podcast.
1: Okay. Yeah. So again, with these terms like biodynamics and terroir and natural, they get attached as labels and it gets tricky. So I think for instance, if we take organic, you know, growing organic vegetables, the term organic has become very loaded, right? it's political, it's like, you don't even know really what it means and what we, what it should mean or what we kind of tend to think that it does mean, but in fact it doesn't, is that, is this thing of just growing vegetables without putting a bunch of crap in them. Like it's, it should be just the natural way of growing vegetables that is straightforward in the earth without a lot of manipulation unfortunately organic vegetables aren't that anymore um so similarly when we use a term like natural it's like what does that mean i don't know but for now there is this label attached to wines that are made basically it's sort of like low intervention wines wines that have not they're not using industrial yeasts and there's definitions under the term natural which i don't can't recall at the moment but like to be a natural wine it has to be under a certain amount of sulfur in the pro in the making of the wine and like i said low intervention meaning you're not monkeying with it a lot <laughs> but so for us we we probably exceed those requirements like our the level of sulfur that we use is very 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 low it's only at bottling which is a moment when the wine gets exposed to the air It can get exposed to a bunch of things. So you're just protecting it a little bit, but essentially it's making wine in the way that most people probably think wine is made, but it in fact, isn't (laughs) meaning you take grape juice and you let it ferment and then you to a certain point and then you bottle it and it's this beautiful drink, right? Unfortunately, wine and the wine industry today it's a much more complex industrial fraught with issues product. but what so what we are actually doing is taking grape juice and letting it ferment to a certain point and putting in bottles and sharing it and going let the cat out of the door One
0: <laughs> I know that I know that noise, yeah we have that noise a little am- I like it when animals visit
1: on the on the podcast, yeah, yes. Yeah. Very cute. Yeah. So our wines are. We even we've even gotten to the point where we don't spray sulfur in the vineyard. So most most every at least in Oregon, even super organic, amazing vineyards are still spraying sulfur, which is not a terrible thing. It's something that's always been sprayed on grapes, not always, but um, for a very long time, and it's used to be a natural product, but uh, that would come out of volcanoes. But we have kind of weaned our vineyard off sulfur. So sulfur is mm-hmm. used to prevent uh, powdery mildew, which is one of the diseases that gets on grapes throughout America, and especially, well, in any case, we we don't have as much mildew pressure where we are here, in particular, which is great. We still have it, so, but we've we've moved from a sulfur spraying program to a program where we spray. Just a few things, which are probiotic teas, which help the immunity of the plant overall. We use an extract of giant knotweed, which is a mildew preventative. And then we also use a product that's made from cinnamon oil. Mm. So they're sort of, they're much more natural products. They're still helping us um, keep mildew at bay. And then the, the teas are actually inspired by like the work of Michael Phillips, the orchardist, Who where he is he's working on the you're working on to promote the immunity and the health of the whole plant over rather than just like treating symptoms. And so yeah. Makes (laughs) all the sense in the world. (laughs) Yeah. And takes work and takes attention, but is simple. And so so our wines have, yeah, a lot less of a sulfur presence in them, but they are also truly the grapes that we've harvested by hand brought in and fermented without the use of commercial yeast so we're just letting the yeast from the atmosphere and the culture of this place go into the the vat and help ferment the grapes and that does include like what's on our hands as we're working with them and then everything in the winery is done by gravity so we're not pumping the wine a lot of wineries will pump wine with a machine So we're trying to sort of disturb the wine as little as possible and get it from its beautiful state in the vineyard, which is right next to the winery. A lot of um, wineries nowadays, the grapes are also grown very far away from the winery and then trucked in. That is, in fact, probably most often the case. It's still, it's not, people think, oh, winery, it's made right there. But that's actually fairly rare. So our grapes are grown right here. We do have other properties nearby that we get grapes from and bring them over and make the wine here. But everything's yeah brought in, fermented, and then the the juice runs off and is fed by gravity, meaning it just drops from one cellar to the other in a hose down the hill. <laughs> it goes to be <laughs> put into barrel and then ding and et cetera. Yeah. I love and that. And we have wines that get Released pretty quickly, like within six months to a year. And then we have other wines that age for several years and various price points. And
0: yeah, I love that. And thank you for just sharing a little bit of that picture because I think that we talk a lot about different farming practices. I mean, everything from oysters to raising meat. And so it was nice to just have a little bit of that picture. And I wanted to add to this that you label them and we've talked so much about your words, but we haven't talked about this connection point of art and illustration in farming. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Thanks. I, yeah, I started making the labels for the wine when we first started and that's been a really fun privilege to do. And I think I was, I trained as a fine artist and I didn't, I, I never really, I wasn't, I didn't know that I was going to be an artist per se. And I've just found that art is a, is a medium that I, that works well for me to learn. And in other words, that was a great way for me to go to school was to go to art school. (laughs) I learned a lot way rather than going for some other, you know, English or something. I, and then art, I'm always kind of evolving my relationship to it, but, I think, like I say in my in still life with field notes, is that creating two dimensional pieces of art, drawings, feel very integral with the whole farming and everything that we're talking about. For me, at least, it's about communicating something on a level that isn't verbal or, you know, by a taste. It's it's visual, and the wine labels are a really interesting way to kind of make a window for people into what that wine was about. So each label is um, part of a, well, each of the wines has, each one has quite a story. Each one is, they're in these families that are represented by different places on this property or in other properties. And so each of the labels kind of gives a window into what that story is. And at some point here, we're hoping to we'll release some sort of book or series of posters where you're able to kind of follow that story of what the, what the wine labels are about. But there's about, I think there's more than 50 of them at this point. Nate makes a lot of different wines because we have the way that we do things is growing wines in field blends. So they are grown as a blend in the field, meaning we'll have a field of, you know, half an acre that has more than 20 or 40 varieties of grape in it. And it's geared toward creating a single wine. So that is actually the way that wine, many wines were grown, even just, you know, like 150 years ago, wines were grown in a much more diversified group. They weren't grown in these monoculture fields of like all Sauvignon Blanc or all Pinot Noir. And that way that, that diversity again creates a lot of nuance and more health um, because grapes, different varieties grapes, you know, they have all have different habits, they have different times of ripening and different diseases that affect them and different structures. And they actually have like hormonal things that go on that affect each other. So growing them in diverse groupings is like really different than monoculture. So anyway, the the images are trying to kind of create a different layer on on this whole story.
0: And they're stunning. And I, I think that the storytelling that you've crafted around Haiyu and from the labels to these stories to even the names of spaces. I mean, I wrote down that you have 112 different grapes organized into four families, light phenomena, birds of prey, constellations, and the hedgerow and, and the, stories that have been crafted around these pieces and the way it connects back to where you are geographically and geologically but also into that space of celestial and human and terrestrial bodies that something comes alive in a in a really profound way through these stories that you tell and Also the food that you bring into the picture with it.
1: Thank you so much. That's a beautiful summing up of what we're trying to do. And I I think the it's been such an incredible process of collaboration again, because it's it's not only the people that I've been able to work with, like Nate is a really brilliant winemaker and understands grapes in this really deep way. And we we worked with the land together to you know, come to this place. And then also, you know, our our business partners have brought in a lot of heart and soul to the process, to the project and our chef, Jason, everyone, the the team that works here, every, and even down to, you know, our customers who respond so amazingly to what's going on. So there's the people, there's the land, there's the the whole, you know, the land that we were talking about earlier, this, this landscape and just like, grokking it all of that has kind of gone into this and you know how for instance the names of the wines surfaced is like kind of a mystery to me it's like whoa wow here we are with these these interesting families it's like quite an interesting story but i don't even know where that came from but it's like uh the the so the four families that are on this property at how not There's other, the other properties have other stories, but here we have, you know, for instance, the hedgerow is, well, let me talk about maybe more like the light phenomena and the birds we have living here. We just noticed this like cycle of birds that would happen on the property and it became important of what this place was about. And so there's, there's a block or a family of wines that are about birds of prey. Cause we have this, it's a, it's a, I sometimes call it a, a bird clock because it's sort of like at a certain time of year, certain birds appear. So it's like the osprey will come to the pond this time. There's a big season of hawks. There's a big season of like, Oh, there's bald eagles now. Or so it's kind of about time and those birds. And then the light phenomena again, it's like we're in we're in this valley. And so we get this incredible, we get an incredible amount of rainbows. And and then that sort of extrapolated to the other light phenomena. So there's wines called, there's a wine called Aura that's has a rainbow on the label. And there's a wine called Halo. And there's a wine called there's Moondog at this point. And then there's gonna be a Sundog. So Moondog and Sundog are those rings of light that appear around the moon or the sun, um, based on atmospheric phenomena. So it's just, again, this was another theme of this place that we really noticed. And so we're just naming that.
0: You said at the beginning of this, that you, you, you don't really know where these names came from. And I, I from my from where I'm sitting, it's so clear that they came from a collaboration with that space, right? Like that there are sometimes when you build the sort of intimacy that I I feel you've built with the land that you, you pull these things out of the ether. And we talked at the beginning of this a little bit about language, right? And giving name. And I think that it's not just our language. It's not just what we speak that gives name to something, but that we feel some sort of connection to it. I mean, language was formed out of the energy of that thing, giving name to itself in many ways, at least how I think about it.
1: Yeah, exactly. That's so true. And and you asked about drawing or making art. Two-dimensional art is, for me, it is a very, it's a, a method for becoming intimate with the place or a, an object. So say if you're drawing a still life, similar to milking a goat, you know, it's like you, you sit with it. For a long period and you get to know it in a way that isn't in our normal rational mind or or linguistic mind way um, and so for me drawing is a is a mode of doing that so sitting down to draw still life like say you're drawing an apple you come to look at it over quite a long period and you're translating it between hand and eye and so you're sort of bypassing your normal way of thinking and that's what drawing and art to me is about is this, way of looking very carefully in a way that you start to see new things. And so when you draw an apple, you don't just say, oh, it's an apple when you draw it. You're actually experiencing apple for the first time in a way.
0: Mm. <laughs> I, oh, I just love that. So I don't even know what to say. I just love that so much to have that chance of experience. I don't know if you have time for one more question, but that brings up something that I just can't leave alone. I loved that description and it brought up something I love you often include the rough edges of a recipe at the end of your writing. And you wrote something about recipes. I get asked for recipes a lot and I never have them because that's not how I cook. And you wrote something that I think is so beautiful. And I think it's also about translating that thing in that presence and attention of the moment. You wrote, Piero, the chef in Tuscany used to say, the oven does not cook the food. You do. He'd always set the oven at the same temperature for whatever he was putting in there, from roast rabbit to eggplant tart. It was up to you to watch, use your senses to see what was needed. The pan to be turned, to be taken out when golden, the temperature up briefly. It's the same with recipes. Once you're familiar with the operations of cooking, dicing, sauteing, braising, etc., recipes serve merely as indications. To stick to the letter of a recipe does not take into account the moment you are living in, the ingredients in front of you, who you are cooking for. All that wisdom is there, accessible, but it's lost if your attention in the present is not brought to bear. And I think that there's a thread there between the way that you approach your two-dimensional drawing, which is so stunning and, and brings you into that space. And this idea of how recipes also bring us into the present when we don't have them, we're just sort of pulling them out of ether, like a name.
1: Yeah. Well, thank you. Yeah. I certainly feel that way about cooking too, that I think like I was trying to say earlier about the cookbooks that it's like, you want to rely on the great wisdom that's out there. It's just incredible but you also need to be present to your own experience in the moment. And cooking, I think, definitely teach you that. Like I said, like once you learn kind of the basics of reading, for instance, you're learning how to put the letters together. And then at that point, something kind of magical happens. And I just love cooking because it's a practice and you do it so often if you commit to it. You know, The results are so tangible and um, yeah.
0: Yeah, I love that. I mean, I cook twice a day, every single day. And um, it is a practice not unlike meditation for me, but it's a space that I drop into that connects me back to back to land and back to what I'm doing and and back to a sense of purpose and and gives me that that space to be in the moment and and very much in the season that, you know, it, we just finished making some crab apple sauce from a crab apple tree or, you know, pulling out a pork chop from last year and pairing it with some apples that are just beginning to to come online here. And, oh no, it just, I think it connects you back through taste and back to land. And I love the way that you described that.
1: Yeah. It's so profound. And when you, you you know, tasting the fruits of your labor, like you talked about is just, I mean, I don't think there's anything more wonderful, which is why I'm such a, I just want to share what farming can mean to people if they, and I'm not saying they need to go and buy land and, you know, there's so many, there's such a wide spectrum of what you can do to get closer to farming.
0: Yeah. And I think that going and experiencing that we talk a lot about this, that going and meeting your farmer, seeing that land, you know, for, for you, you have this beautiful wine tavern and chance to experience both the food and the wine that you grow there and, and, and to go there and have that experience alone, I think begins to connect you a little bit deeper.
1: Totally. Yeah. So important. And people have been doing more with like going to farmer's markets and stuff, but it's like, I think that to see the reward is what's really key. Like we talked about getting a yield while doing this process. Like you, that's why cooking can be so satisfying because you're literally having a reward every time you cook (laughs) because you're eating this beautiful food and you're feeling better, healthier using beautiful ingredients and, So that's why I feel like it's a great, a great medium or tool.
0: Yeah. Another medium. Thank you for finding all of these liminal spaces and mediums I pulled out. I mean, this morning, and I was telling you earlier that this morning was very crisp and cool and I could feel fall. And obviously I'm pretty far North. So fall is going to hit me earlier, but as I was reading through your work last night and I took my, my first after chores bath of the season, like I was chilled from, from doing chores in the evening and I came in and I lit a candle. I was reading some of your work (laughs) and I pulled out this piece. You have a lot of, you had two beautiful pieces of fall and I'm just going to read them really quick because this podcast will release, I think, as many people across the country are coming into fall. And I thought that you were just the perfect person to guide us through that liminal space, as we've talked about all these in-betweens and transitions and two little quotes. And one is similarly, similarly, Leaf drop feels like loss, yet it is necessary for the new to emerge. That moment of letting go, the exhale of the leaf floating downward, irrevocably leaving its habitual place, remains heartrending. It feels necessary that it's a process, an entire season, autumn. It's encouraging to realize the tree has already made next year's leaf bud. It's right at the base of the old leaf, waiting for the old to wrap up, clear the stage, and claim its own space to unfurl.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think autumn is, is very liminal. Like you talked about it. I mean, it feels there's such a letting go and such a sort of disappointment tinged with relief and like gladness mm. to go into the winter, but mm. yeah. And I, I, I'm definitely a spring person. I love spring and I love the like work that you're able to accomplish and the energy and the forward moving. And then I'm pretty miserable in summer. <laughs> <Like> you, <laughs> you have chilly there, which I'm really jealous of. Because it's supposed to go up to 98 again here to, today. We've had this terrible, really hot late summer where it's been over 100 many times, which is not so normal, and it's really hard. So I'm I'm feeling excited for autumn, but <laughs> but I it's interesting when the seasons are being abnormal how much you appreciate the normal cycle. Like when you feel that chill of autumn, it's like, Oh yeah. But autumn typically, yeah, there is a, a sort of grief about it, but also getting down to purifying is, so this is the season of Virgo, which is about purity and, and refining. And so that's why it's the harvest. It's where you're gleaning, pulling things, You're pulling in the good things and letting other things die. And and that's what Virgo is about on a personal level as well. So I don't know. It's just just very good to embrace the season. And the seasons are much more nuanced than we normally give them credit for. So, you know, we we could say that there's at least 12 seasons because there are the 12 signs. But even within them, you can experience you know this this very end of summer is so different than the beginning of autumn like there's definitely like a very fine nuanced feeling about it
0: i love that that there could be 12 seasons because i experience it that way that that four feels limiting in the amount of nuance and subtle shifts and just felt sense that there is as things turn in that cycle
1: yeah yeah
0: yeah Thank you so much for doing this with me. I I leave everybody with the same question, which is what does it mean for you to lay the groundwork? And that can be on a personal level or a more macro scale.
1: To lay the groundwork for anything in particular, like Mm. for my work or for...
0: Could be for your work. Sometimes for people it's often what we do for generations ahead of time or just what we do for the land. Like it, it takes a lot of different tilts. And I think it's just, however, it resonates with you.
1: Okay. Yeah. So I got it. It's, um, it's about sketching. So when you, when you go to do a creative project of any kind and let's call it a drawing, you start out with a sketch and then I will often say to myself, like, even with high it's like we've sketched what this is meant to be and later we're coming back and filling in so it's not just filling in it's it's you know when you're doing a drawing you you sketch and then and it kind of gives this framework the structure groundwork of what is going to happen there and it uh, similarly as we talked about the astrology chart like a map it's black and white it's kind of you know, you can't relate to it that well, but then as it starts to fill in, it becomes clear. So sketching is a really important metaphor for me for anything I'm doing, because it's like, there's this moment where you need to just put in the block, the building blocks, but not get too attached to them. And like, know that you can work in and work it up better as you go along.
0: That was perfect. That was so beautiful. Thank you. Thank you for that. We'll have links to where people can find you in the show notes, but including still life with field notes and your Instagram at Stellagraphia and hi you. And I I don't know, I want to make sure I'm not missing anything. And also I wanted to make sure to draw people's attention to the understory because I think that this is such a beautiful way to support the work that you guys are doing.
1: Wonderful. Yeah. Thank you. Those are all great links. And the understory is Um, our subscription to the farm and what we're doing. And it's, you also receive wine on the, I think it's a quarterly basis. It has to do with when we can ship wine because wine needs to be shipped in the, in the season when the temperature is right. So that it, because it's a living thing. So we have to take good care of it, but yeah. Thank you so much. Um, um, You have a wonderful way of asking questions and really, really listening and crocking what, what, this is all about. So I really enjoyed it a lot. And thanks so much for the opportunity.
0: Oh, yeah. Thank you. Thank you for that. That was very kind. Um, It was a pleasure to have you on. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Groundwork Podcast. If what you heard today resonated with you, may I ask that you share it with your friends or leave us a review? This helps others find groundwork. If you're looking for more, you can find us at groundworkcollective.com and at Groundwork Collective on Instagram. I would like to give a very special thank you to China and Seth Kent of the band All Right All Right for clips from the beautiful song Over the Edge from their album, The Crucible. You can find them at All Right All Right on Instagram and wherever you listen to music.